Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church New Bern Podcast. My name is Paul Scott Sharnitsky, and I am one of your hosts. I am joined, as always, by Anna. Just kidding. Anna is not here. This is just Paul Scott because we wanted to not have a lot of talking because we wanted to share a little bit from the presentation, which was last week, from Bernard George. He came and spoke at the Session House. He's a local historian. He gave about an hour-long uh, presentation on the genesis of the African-American church in New Bern. It was awesome. And so I kind of like tried to clip out just a little parts or just a part of that presentation for us to, uh, here on the podcast. So we're going to listen to that, and then we'll be followed by Anna's sermon from October 16th. Um, the full presentation of Bernard George will be posted on First Presbyterian's YouTube channel soon, probably in about a week. Um, Bernard did give us permission to film and to put it on um, YouTube, so that's pretty cool. Um, before we launch into that, just some quick upcoming events at First Pres. There's a church building tour and history presentation on October 23rd at 2 p.m. in the sanctuary led by Jerry Elliott, so that's pretty cool. I actually might go to that with my camera. I'm going to think about that. Um, we have a fall festival coming up on October 30th. That's uh, Sunday, so that's like uh, families are invited to wear Halloween costumes to worship and to bring trick-or-treat buckets, and then you go to the J. Murphy Smith Center after um, the, the last church service. So that's from noon to 2 on October 30th. Uh, lunch wagon outing to Mike's Farm on November 20th at 2 p.m. That sounds cool. There's a hayride. What? I should go to that too. Oh my gosh. Um, and then also November 11th through the 13th, uh, we have a thing called Family Camp. Um, and this is a uh, family's going to Camp Caroline. It says it's equipped with plush cottages. I like the sound of that. A little bit of glamping. Um, it says contact Catherine Campbell to register. So that sounds pretty cool. Um, so, uh, there's lots more going on. You can check everything. You know, I was just reading that off of the online bulletin, which can be found at firstpresnb.org. And, uh, without further ado, I give you just a little part of the Bernard George presentation, and then we'll launch into Anna's sermon from October 16th. So, uh, we hope you have a great week and, um, we'll talk to you again with, with two of us, with Anna, we'll be back on the podcast. Actually, I take that back. Uh, Zeb will be on next week's um, podcast. Zeb Huff is the director of RCS, and he will be a guest preacher uh, next Sunday, and then or this Sunday, rather, I guess, coming up. He will also be doing a little presentation in between the services, too. So uh, next week, it's uh, Paul Scott and Zeb, and then uh, Anna will be back after that. We promise. All right, everybody have a great week. We will talk to you next week. My title today is The Genesis of the African-American Church in New Bern. And, and Jim, I told Jim before I came, that last year it was hot in here. And uh, he was so kind to bring me a tissue and wipe my face and whatever. <laughs> and I told Jim that that wouldn't be necessary this time. I bought my own. I didn't expect tears, though, but it does fill me up because I spent 25 years uh, with the uh, city of New Bern as a zone administrator, and I had many crowds just like this through those 25 years, and they wanted to roast me from time to time. So it's good to, to be among friends, good Christian friends, and, you know, it fills me up. But anyway, 
I'm going to start off with an introduction about the antebellum period and religion. Uh, during the antebellum period in North Carolina, there were no independent black churches because it was against the law for black people to congregate together because of the fear of uprising, slave revolts, et cetera, et cetera. And so all the, all the churches actually, Jim, started out together. Black people in the church, white people in the church, black people at the back of the church, hello back there, <laughs> and uh, white people at the front, or black people in the balcony. But we were all in there together and we heard much of the same sermons. Now, um, when Asbury came here, the United, uh, where the Methodist Episcopal Church got started here, and we're getting ready to uh, 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 celebrate its 250th anniversary here. There were black and white parishioners who made it up, made up that church, and uh, even here in First Press, there were uh, black parishioners. We always mention Kitty, uh, Kitty Green Stanley, and her husband, John, John Stanley. And, and, and the 13 original members of this great church. Well, this is just the case with all of the denominations that were here, that came here, the Episcopalians, the Methodists, the uh, Presbyterians, even the Catholics, the Methodists, the Baptists, they all had that set up. Well, with black people, African-American people, no single institution was of greater importance to black people than the church. It was so important because the story of Christ is the story of, of, of triumph over evil, triumph and suffering, and especially the story of Moses. That's the most uh, popular story in the Bible for black folk and it mirrored our sojourn here in America. W.E.B. Du Bois expressed the church significance as the center of economic activity as well as that of amusement, education, and social intercourse. So the church was a center of black community. Many ways the church started out for black people as a hush harbor, uh, uh, a bush harbor. We familiar with that, right? There are revivals. During the great revival of the early 1800s, people flooded out to hear these revivalists and they would go out in the woods many times or in an area where they could have these revivals and since there was not much, uh, uh, they didn't have the furniture, et cetera, they would uh, put, uh, put up a temporary structure, which was a bush harbor. Anybody heard of a bush harbor? All right, we got a few people have about as old as I am. <laughs> but, okay, slaves had the same situation because they wanted to go out and worship God in their own way together. And so they were sometimes called hush harbors because it was quiet, I heard the song, the spiritual, hush, hush, somebody's calling my name, hush, hush, 
Somebody's calling my name. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. What shall I do? All right. And so and sometimes they'd even put wet uh, quilts around the area that muffle the sounds so that they would not be found out. They would not be exposed. The African-American churches got started nationally in Philadelphia and in New York. Uh, the AME and the AME Zion Church, I'll give you a little example of why there is a difference. The AME Church started in Philadelphia. Richard Allen, we heard of the Free African Society, which is a benevolent society that supported free blacks who were just thrown off the shackles of slavery and maybe needed funeral expenses, medical expenses, help, etc. So they paid into this fund. And from that, Richard Allen, uh, he was a member of the, AM, uh, of the uh, Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia, and they were getting the same kind of treatment there. Uh, they were, were not allowed to receive the sacraments with other white uh, uh, parishioners. They had to wait. Uh, they had to sit in the balcony, et cetera. So eventually they left the church and founded the AME Church in Philadelphia. The same thing went on in New York City, where my church, AME Zion Church, they're both the same, pretty much the same. They came out of the Methodist Episcopal Church. We in New York attach Zion to the end of our name to distinguish us from the AME Church. And these two denominations grew separately. And in 1816, the AME Church received its first bishop and it, and it was incorporated as a denomination. The AME Zion Church, five years later in 1821, did the same thing. We had our first bishop. And so the second bishop of the AME Zion Church, though, who came, uh, who was elected in about 18... See what I mean? Pretty cool, right? So uh, we're going to stop right there. I don't want to give away too much because we'll have the entire presentation from Bernard on First Presbyterian's YouTube channel in the coming weeks. Uh, we'll put a, a notice out on social media once we post it. And uh, everyone, again, have a great week and enjoy Anna's sermon from October 16th. Let us pray. Gracious God, illumine these words. Illumine these words by your Spirit, that we might hear what you would have us hear and be who you would have us be. For the sake of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading for today comes from the Gospel according to Luke, and we are reading the first eight verses of the 18th chapter. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who feared neither God nor had respect for people. In that city, there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, 
I will give her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. While certainly not a singular or isolated incident, the circumstances of this parable remind me of a time about 20 years ago when my husband was incredibly right and I was incredibly wrong. Now, I should say that I did not grow up living in old houses. I did not know what it was like to live in an old house and to try and renovate it. Ben knew way more than I did. He lived in an old house on the eastern shore of Maryland. He had lived in and at least partially renovated an old row house in Frederick, Maryland before we got married, and he moved to West Virginia. So. When we were moving to Pennsylvania and the only house we could find that we could afford to buy and that was available was an old house that nobody had lived in for at least five years that had dirt for a kitchen floor and all knob and tube wiring. I immediately had visions and it wasn't just the hand turned Victorian doorbell that I fell in love with. I fell in love with this house and I could immediately see what it would look like when we took care of all of its issues. I thought, and I told Ben, I think we could probably get this done in a year or two and then it'll all be finished. Well, Ben knew way more than I did and he said, Anna, it's going to take a lot longer than one or two years. And as sometimes happens in married life, I didn't pay any attention to what he said. I was certain I was right and we bought the house. And sure enough, five years later when we moved, the house was not finished. Now most of the wiring had been upgraded. We now had a floor in the kitchen, but there were still holes in the walls from the wiring updates. We had not renovated the kitchen at all. The fireplace didn't work. The doorbell was still perfect, but that's all about all we had finished. I was not a patient person when it came to that house. I was not sorry to see it go when I realized just how long it was going to take. I wanted it done. My husband, on the other hand, enjoyed the process. He loved the process of repairing and uncovering and restoring. And he tried to tell me that it was going to take a long time. He tried to point it out, but I didn't listen. The people to whom this parable is directed were feeling a little bit like me, impatient. They were ready and they didn't know why things were taking so long. They thought that once the Messiah arrived, God's kingdom would be soon behind. And when they imagined God's kingdom, it was that in an immediate fell swoop, everything would be repaired. They would no longer be a conquered people. Rome would still, would no longer be an authority over them and all would be well. There would be food and health and happiness and joy. And they would once again be in charge of their own lives. 
and it would happen in the blink of an eye. That's what they wanted, it's what they expected, and when it didn't happen like that, when they were continuing to wait and wait and wait, they didn't know what was going on, and many of them felt like maybe it was time to give up the faith. They were so impatient. And they were impatient for something that I think I struggle to even comprehend how awful it truly was. They had been waiting for generations. So this parable is told to let them know that they can wait, that Jesus is there, that God is coming. And Jesus and God want them to know that their cries have been heard. Jesus tells them this parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge. And when we hear parables, it's pretty natural for us to put God in the position of the person in authority, the person who is in a respected place, the person who is in charge. But in this parable, it's very abundant from the very beginning that the unjust judge is not the one we are to imagine is God in this situation. This fictitious judge has made it clear that he is, has left God and he no longer lives in even the same zip code. He does not fear God and he does not respect people. And those are kind of the things he's supposed to do as a judge. In Luke's time, judges behaved and acted not on behalf of some other code, but on behalf of Jewish code, on behalf of God. That's exactly what they were supposed to be doing. My colleague Meg Peary McLaughlin writes, because it was understood that the judgment judges rendered was God's own judgment, you better believe that any sound judge would know the Torah like the back of his hand. Judges of all people who know that God's justice is always bent towards widows and orphans. The Torah tells us time and time and time again things like, the Lord your God is a God of gods who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and who loves the stranger, for you were once a stranger in the land of Egypt. This judge of this parable is wholly unsuited for his calling. This is like saying that there was a chef who did not know how to melt butter. There was a lifeguard who did not know how to swim. That's the equivalent of this judge in this parable. And this is the judge that the widow must go to in order to get justice. The widow had to go to the judge because in her culture, she had no power. It didn't matter if she was young or middle-aged or older or had children at home or had no children. Widows did not have power. They had no ability to hold property and their very lives depended on other people doing the right thing, doing what their Bible and their holy texts told them to do. Did this widow want to be a persistent bother to the judge? Probably not, but it's likely she had no choice, nowhere else to go, no one else to whom to turn. And so she goes again and again and again. So much so, the judge says that he will give in so that she will not wear him out. And more literally, it is described is that so that she will not keep beating him black and blue. So if God is not like the judge, what if we consider that God is like the persistent widow? 
that God will not and cannot and does not give up on us. If that's the message that Jesus was sending to these people who had been waiting and crying out for so many generations, what if the message is that God is like the persistent widow who does not and cannot give up? And isn't that good news? That God will not go away? That so precious is God's powerful and persistent love that it arrives for us on our good days and our not so good days? And that we can always know on each day and in every moment that we are loved and that we are created in the image of God and that we are forgiven and freed and called to serve this great God. No matter how many times we reject that truth, no how many times that we reject and believe the lie that we are not worthy of love, God persists. God consistently persists with a message of love and grace and forgiveness for us, for you, and for me? What if God is like the persistent widow who continues to show up for us and calls us out into discipleship? God persists in wanting us to follow the command of Jesus to love one another, not just as we want to be loved, but as Jesus loved one another, as Jesus loved us. God is a God who will not let us go. I heard a story recently of a church in another state that does, like so many churches do, like we do, an occasional minute for mission to highlight something important about the life of the church. But this one happened in a way that the people didn't expect. It started this way. The man stood up and he said, my name is Dr. John Hall. And on Thursday afternoon, I got another obnoxious email from Mason Ormsby. Now, my friend who told me this story said that it took the congregation just a moment to figure out that one of their church members had just called someone else out for being obnoxious in broad daylight in the church sanctuary, no less. But John didn't stop there, he continued. The email said that there were not enough doctors for our church Saturday morning clinic at the Free Health Clinic. And Mason asked if I would help, but I was tired. I am tired, but Mason's emails would not stop and he would not quit. He said, we'll schedule some patients for you. And then, my friend said, John Hall went on to tell the story of treating a man by the name of Mr. Tanakis, who lived in our city for seven years on a green card. Mr. Tanakis came to see Dr. Hall complaining about a problem in his wrists, and Dr. Hall went through the man's chart, and there were notes about various tests that had been run. There were no notes about risks, but there were notes about negative tests run for AIDS, anemia, thyroid disease, hepatitis, leukemia. And John took a look at the man and he said, you're awfully thin. That's it, that's it. And he showed John his wrists. Yes, they're thin. So John asked, do you have diarrhea? No. Do you vomit? No. Do you eat? No. And then there was an awkward pause. When Dr. Hall asked a question, he didn't know he would need to ask. Would you eat if you had food? Yes. Do you have any food? No. 
So John, Dr. Hall, then figured out how to get Mr. Tanakis some emergency food stamps and set him up to get into the food pantry that day and to come back the next week to get more groceries. And then he sat down to chart the very first case of starvation that he had ever had to chart as a physician. Dr. John Hall then concluded his minute for mission with a word of thanks for Mason Ormsby, the glue of the Saturday morning free clinic, who continues to send out email reminder after email reminder, pleading, pleading with people and asking them to serve. He said thank you to the obnoxious Mason Ormsby, and then he sat down. Thank God for the persistent, obnoxious Mason Ormsby. Thank God for the persistent widow, and thank God that God will not let us go. God, like the persistent widow who will not let us sit still. God, like the persistent widow who sees something in you, who sees something in all of us and tells us that our days of ministry are not in the past. They are still ahead of us and they are around us right now. I love this image of God being the persistent widow that does not let us go. But I also believe there's more here. I believe not only is God the persistent widow, I believe we're called to be that way too. I believe we're called to be persistent, to refuse to be silent, to, to refuse to be silent, to refuse to stand aside while there are people who are crying out in need, to embrace those that others say are unworthy, to the widows of the world. Aren't we the ones who should listen Aren't we the ones who should respond to those who are in need and those who are dismissed and those whose words other people don't feel are worthy of a true hearing? Aren't we too called to be like the persistent widow who continues to show up to speak and work for the truth that everyone should have food to eat and a safe place to live? Aren't we called to show up and proclaim and behave in a way that welcomes and loves? As Barbara Lumblad preached on this text, this isn't a story about God, this is a story about us, a story about how we relate to God. And this is a parable that says yes, yes to prayers, yes to working for justice, and yes to faith. And we need all of those things if we are to live into what God calls from us. For if we pray without working for justice, our prayers are empty. If we work for justice without prayer, we'll think it all depends on us and we are the only ones who can solve it. We'll leave God out of the equation. If we pray and work for justice without faith, we will fall to despair when justice isn't done. We'll be too impatient. Prayer and justice and faith, that's what this story is about. What Jesus has joined together, let no one set asunder, she concluded. And friends, we are living in a new age, a new time. And what we did before does not necessarily establish what we will do next. What God called us to do in decades before is not necessarily what God is calling us to in the decades ahead. Except for the qualities of that ministry that do stay the same. The call to pray the prayers, to have the conversations, to keep the faith, to be committed to the process and not just the goal. 
to be disciples of Jesus Christ that aren't just looking to heaven, but are following Jesus in the mundane and the extraordinary and every moment in between of life. For friends, our persistent God, whose love will not let us go, has a vision for us still. And this persistent body of Christ, the church, you, we cannot let our voices go either, our love go. So may we receive this good word. May we be inspired by this persistent widow, and may we work to create this good word that calls together prayer and justice and faith to persistently, consistently. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us go out into the world with hope, with faith, with prayer, and a desire to be persistent. Let us go with the creative forces of God, the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the passion and the fire of the Holy Spirit. Alleluia. Amen. <laughs>